Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. It's only been one day since the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's anti-vaping regulation went into effect and already the FDA has informed some stakeholders that their pre-market tobacco applications have been received and accepted for review by the regulator. Is there truly a glimmer of hope for the survival of the U.S. vaping industry or do vapors have a dark future to face? If there's anyone who might know the answers, it's Demetrius Agrafiotis, a.k.a. The Vaping Greek. He's a globally known vaping advocate and executive director of the Tennessee Smoke Free Association. And if you're looking for frank talk and piercing analysis, he's your man. Demetrius, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to be on you, Brent. And thank you for your continued uh, tireless effort of covering vaping news. So we appreciate it. Uh, appreciate it. Well, you've been an inspiration over the years, no doubt. Now, before we jump into our PMTA conversation and whether, you know, the vaping industry is deeply screwed or not, there's obviously a lot of things that have propped up the FDA's anti-vaping position over the years and certain players that say things and do things. And one of them is a, a very good friend of yours. And I thought we'd start the show by playing something from him. <laughs> I'm United States Surgeon General Jerome Adams, and I'm here with Cooper, who has a very important message for the young people out there. I was hospitalized due to vaping, and I think if you're a kid and you're trying to vape, don't vape. Yeah. It's not a good idea to start vaping. It's addictive, and you won't be able to stop after you start. Wow. Well, thanks so much for having the courage to share that. Um, so proud of you and glad to see you're doing better. You were on a, a ventilator for 14 days. Yes. Wow. Wow. That's what vaping can do to you, but you have the power to uh, avoid vaping and you have the power to quit. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, Cooper. Thank you. Hey, America. I'm <laughs> At what you know, point is it cruel to keep some, picking oh, on him? Okay. Yeah, I know that echo is okay. obviously yeah. going to be there. So at what point is it cruel to keep picking on the Surgeon General? Uh, you know, <laughs> I think that more people need to, to pick on him. I think that he's talking to the American public like we're idiots, like we're, we're, we're school children. I, at some point, the American public has to wake up and realize what this guy is doing. He's and taking a selfie video with a criminal, right? This kid is underage. He was vaping THC, which I'm sure was illegal. He got caught. And instead of him being punished and his parents parenting him, he's rewarding him by literally posting a video with him on Twitter. In fact, I was in D.C. yesterday and I invited uh, Jerome Adams, like I always do when I go to D.C., to have a coffee with me and sit down and talk. And, of course, he stood me up again. Um, so I'm thinking maybe I should start vaping illegal bootleg THC carts, go to the hospital for a couple of weeks, and maybe I'll have the opportunity to finally meet this fraud because that's what he is. He's a complete fraud. And the American people... More American people need to wake up, not just on the vaping issue, the corona issue, everything. I mean, this guy has been a total, total disappointment for, for the United States government and a total disappointment for the Trump administration as well. And I think it's important because there's been a long line of very credible, very highly respected Surgeon Generals over the years, all the way back to uh, Coop, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, they, they, you know, the last decade hasn't been that great. But yeah, before that, they have, I mean, we used to look at that position as the top doctor in the United States. Just the other day, he made a tweet about ethics. And I, I, I tweeted him back. I said, how can you be talking about ethics when you were the top doctor in Indiana? Your ethics and your morals stopped people 
from using a needle exchange program during an AIDS epidemic and people died because of what, you know, your morals were and your ethics were. You didn't put your doctor hat or the Hippocratic oath that you gave. Now the same thing with Corona. He did the same thing with masks. Now he's doing the same thing with vaping as well too. He's not looking at the science. He's only looking at the science when it fits his agenda or whatever those that control this puppet, this anesthesiologist that really has zero medical expertise, um, whatever these 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 masters that control this puppet are giving him to tell in the public. And he's you know hanging on to his his job, and that's what he's trying to do. Not get fired by not saying you know the the wrong thing. You know, it's certainly, and I'm, I'm, I've not yet had a chance to talk about this issue, and I knew that, obviously, you'd be the one to be able to do this with, because it strikes me that he's diminished uh, the stature, the credibility of that office. It used to have high stature. Just them? I mean, every, every, every public health um, organization has done that to Americans, and I think Corona was a really good, whether we want, you know, I don't want to debate or argue with anybody, you know, what's right or wrong. What is absolutely factual is that every arm of the government, when it deals to public health with Corona, screwed up. All of them. All of them. And in turn, I think more and more people have lost faith, not only in the U.S. Surgeon General, the CDC, the FDA, the Human Health Services. We look to these organizations as they're protecting public health of Americans, and nobody believes them. So in turn, eventually, this might actually help us with vaping because if people are saying, hey, look, they lied about corona, uh, they're probably lying about vaping. So it might actually help us in the long run, but in the short term, it has caused chaos, it has caused deaths, it has caused misinformation, and it has, it has lost the trust completely uh, of, of the American public. And it's being led by the, by, by the U.S. Surgeon General. He's just a, just a little puppet. Yeah, it's pretty clear. I get the sense uh, a lot that he's speaking for the CDC. Like what he's saying is not really his positions. It's you know the higher ups and the regulatory authorities. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he gets an email. We're doing this this week, and then he jumps on board, goes in front of every camera. He's really, he's really, uh, 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 he dies, you know, for for fifteen seconds on Good Morning America. Oh, you, know, you can this, say it on he, our show. Is yeah, he a camera yeah. whore? Is that what he yeah, is? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. He is a social media attention. He he wants to get on every show, Good Morning America, the Today Show, and get his fifteen seconds of fame. Um, and, and all he does is get up there and read from a script. And and what, you, what I find really ironic is that he said that I'm going to lead this office with science. Uh, and uh, and he says, as the new data comes in, you know, I'm going to change my position as long as we look at the scientific data. Well, obviously, with all the scientific data that we have provided him about vaping, he hasn't looked at none of it. So it's he's clearly lying. He's been caught multiple times lying. Kevin Crowley has done a great job of analyzing a lot of his tweets and his statements, and we're tweeting him back to him, and we're treating it to, to the public as well to try to wake people up and try to make him aware. We've only had one mainstream news media question him on his shift on masks. Uh, and that was after a big Twitter push by, by me and Kevin and a few others to, to get him to ask that question. And his response was, well, the data changed. So I changed my position. Mm -hmm. um, guess what? The data has changed on vaping for the last 10 years. You need to change your position as well there. Right. How much of a fact, uh, an effect do you think there is from him with FDA? We'll move on off of him. I think he's, sure, he's sure. I think in, in, the, in a way he's a bit irrelevant, but the point though is that he is one of those consistent mainstream media 
mouthpieces and it's only damage that he does. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that he's that that position is pretty much irrelevant, period, at this point. And, and all these mistakes that the government has done, I think, in the last decade has led up to that. But but obviously his position is not what it used to be during the coup days. Right. Uh, it's not nobody really takes him seriously. And what I have noticed is that after we started this Twitter war, if you want to call it uh, with him and called him out on a few things that stand validity. I mean, if we had right now a PR firm like we had originally planned and we had the opportunity to put this in mainstream, he would have been fired. There's right. no doubt in my mind he would not have that position because we have literally caught him in lies and positions. Uh, but we don't have that. But we have this, this social media that we can tweet at him and we get other people involved. And what I've seen in the last two, three months, he hasn't touched the vaping issue at all. He has not tweeted anything about vaping, especially after the CDC you know, made the statement about THC cards. So he's kind of staying away from it because he put his foot in his mouth multiple times he got caught and i'm seeing him stay away but as far as the other stuff is concerned you know wash your hands wear your mask the three w's and all that come on man i mean you know you're, you're getting to a point where people are tired of it you cannot lead the you know the, the the leading health office of the united states by by repeating stuff that people just don't care about anymore they don't believe you they don't trust you you need to find either a different way to deliver it or you really need to take that position and just remove it. We don't need to have the U.S. Surgeon General. We have the other frauds like the CDC and the FDA doing a great job on it. Man, you're talking my language, Jimmy. You're talking my language. There is no doubt. Um, where to go with that? And I do have a personal agenda with him. I really do. I really do. And and, and I actually, he was the only name that I brought up in my speech in, in Saturday in Washington, D.C. I try to keep it general in the government. But he was the only one that I addressed by name. Uh, in my in my speech in Washington, I said, um, you know, for years your government has told you this. You know, it was a list of things, and then I ended it with, for years your government has been lying to you, including your U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams. He's the only one that I use by name because I do have it personal with him. I believe that any doctor that takes that oath, Brent, uh, and goes against it just to save his job or to please Trump or to please the administration or whatever his agenda is, or he has pharmaceutical buddies or he has tobacco stocks whatever it is anybody that goes that oath to me it not only does not deserve to be a surgeon general they're not good human beings when you cause death and he has caused death it's proven that he has caused death both in corona both in indiana and both with a vaping issue all three of those issues he's gotten it wrong when you cause death you don't belong to be there and i take that personally because my father died from smoke yeah, well, as a doctor, I mean, that oath he takes, he should be following it. And that should be actually larger than following science. Whatever the hell following science means, follow your Hippocratic oath. I have doctors that see me that tell me, Dimitri, I mean, my own personal doctor, if somebody smokes and they've tried the available NRT methods and they have failed, I suggest to them to go to vaping. I suggest to them to go to an independent vape shop. In fact, my own doctor, you know, that's that's when you know that this person really cares about their patients, right? They don't tell them quit or die or use the drugs that that we're trying to peddle into your into your mouth. And and if it works, it works. If it doesn't work to me, that is the true meaning of the oath. And and he needs to do the same thing. He is an MD after all. Right. And that is I mean, and that's critical. I mean, most of the doctors that we have on the show, of course, on the epidemiology side and so forth, they don't take the same kind of oath. Uh, yeah. But if you're a medical doctor, you've taken that. 
I think yeah. he gets his orders from CDC. I don't think he, uh, anything of that comes out of his mouth is from the administration proper or from from Trump. I think it's the total what I've always called the de the deep state of public health. I think public health has revealed itself to be, quite frankly, uncontrollable. I mean, they they're I, out of control. The only bad thing is that we're not getting mainstream coverage exposing it. We're not getting that at all. It seems like even the media has gotten onto that the same team right on the same side of the field and yeah. it's just a mountain it's just a mountain for us to overcome um of misinformation and misguidance um that is really hurting the american public and hurting international public health sure. because a lot of other countries look to the united states for guidance unfortunately um so it, it's causing a really a, a global so it's a global tragedy what is happening right now and nobody is holding them accountable nobody nobody <laughs> It's pretty simple, I think, if you look at something that, you know, this big controversial issue around masks, if public health from the WHO and the CDC, and I mean, if public health after, I don't know what, you know, 10,000 years of fighting respiratory illnesses, I mean, tuberculosis has been killing, has killed one out of 10 humans that have lived ever. And TB was only really conquered, if it, if you can call it conquered, 50, 60 years ago. So, I mean... We've got this deep, huge, you know, huge, I mean, our ingrained in our DNA, this, this predator that's been, you know, hunting us down is respiratory illness. So yeah. public health's whole thing is respiratory illness. For them not to have known or can even say even today whether or not a face mask is efficacious or not, right. then, then public health is broken. Right. And it goes top down, like you said. If, if we're waiting on this one group, the World Health Organization, because this is what Jerome Adam claims. It came down to the CDC and it came and then it got to him and then he changed his stance on masks while the rest of the world was... If, if this is how, like, your decisions are made, then we got a huge problem. We really got to rethink this, This you know, the way that the, the data... Like, in a week, you analyzed all this data that the WHO gave you and you went from making fun of masks and telling people that I'm not worried about masks. I'm worried about somebody that's reclining the airplane chain and uh, chair in front of me in the plane in a week, you say, Oh, we got new data, new science. And you analyzed all this in a week while you're doing interviews and taking selfies with criminals. Uh, you analyzed all this data and now you change yours. It's just, it's, I mean, it's clearly cut that the guy is, is a fraud and, and, uh, I'm going to keep uh, exposing him every chance that I get and uh, and every public platform that I can. I try to get a little jab in there because people need to wake up. The sheep need to wake up and say, hey, listen, uh, we're being lied to here. Well, and there's one guy. So with some dedicated, you know, pressure, maybe something can happen. So let's jump into FDA and PMTA. When I got here, and I, I did this yesterday when Guy Bentley from Reason was on, and I'm going to do that again. We prepared a scrolling video of the over 3,000 companies in the United States of America that had listed themselves with the FDA as a part of the process in the pre-PMTA process. And you can fill us in a little bit more exactly what this list is. They, everyone had to you know, put their information in. Um, and um, we know already a lot of these companies are gone. And so I'm gonna just, when we're talking over the course of the show, I'm gonna make sure that we have that. I want our viewers to see that there are so many companies involved in this industry and i think that um well i mean i hope it's not a scrolling of a dead company list but yeah <laughs> well some of them will be but some of them will be but yeah it's yeah. kind of the idea so why don't we jump straight in tell us about this list and how it played a role in setting up for pmta and then we'll dump, dive into pmta yeah so um 
when when the pre-market tobacco application was announced that the process is going to start, it sent into motion various steps that the, ma the manufacturers had to comply with. And uh, the first step was for you to register with the FDA. So they wanted to know who's going to be the stakeholders in this industry, whether you're a manufacturer, whether you're a distributor, whether you're both a retailer and a manufacturer. Everybody had to register with the FDA if you sell the newly deemed tobacco products, as they called. Then the next step would be to file a product registration, meaning the products that you're selling. Then you had to do an ingredient listing. These are all steps of the process leading up to you filing a PMTA. And I think what the FDA kind of thought was, well, this is going to kind of alleviate and kind of give us a, you know, a little good idea of where we stand as far as accepting PMTA applications. And as you can see, you know, there's a lot of manufacturers that, you know, strictly liquid manufacturers, but there's a lot of smaller operations. Uh, that manufacture liquid, for example, for their own retail stores, people that have 10, 12, 15 uh, retail stores that make their own liquid just for them not to wholesale. Then there's other places that, that, that create liquid for them to sell and they wholesale to other stores. Uh, then there's just little mom and pops operations that just mix liquid for their customers within the store as well, too. So that list, I'm sure that the FDA was not expecting this, but that list, uh, you know, this is how the, the, the original big list of, you know, uh, registered manufacturers with the FDA came about. And think about this, you know, I have a 500 square foot store in, you know, uh, Cartersville, Georgia somewhere, you know, and I've got a customer base and, you know, I'm making liquid. I now have to register. <laughs> Listen to how, to how silly this sounds. I have to register with the Food and Drug Administration as a tobacco manufacturer, right? It's mind blowing. But unfortunately, that is the law. That's what you had to do. And so uh, let's spend a little moment on this and it's going to drag us back. I know into some of the acrimony or at least I've got some really bad feelings about public health because of their use of language. It is just so purposeful to when they deem um, a piece of plastic or a battery or even e-liquid, you know, as a tobacco product, it just drives me insane because it, that's the original sin that's happened. And it's from that in which everything else follows. It's a tobacco product, it's a tobacco product. All the research, it's tobacco, they're using tobacco. Um, and, you know, and, and, and vapor is vapor, but they call it smoke. I mean, even researchers call it smoke. We just, it's just astonishing to me, their complete, total, brazen lack of truth. Yes, I did, I did uh, an extensive explanation of the Tobacco Control Act and the PMTA on the DP show a couple of weeks ago. It's actually like an hour and a half with slides if people want to go see and look at the entire history of it. But I will tell you that this is all based on the Tobacco Control Act, which was signed into law in 2009 by Obama. However, the tobacco control negotiation, because this is what that, this bill is, it was a negotiation between Philip Morris, essentially, and the government and public health and Matt Myers and all these, you know, jokesters. A negotiation started 10 years before that. Around 1999 is when the discussion of us crafting the tobacco control started. So there was a 10 year, basically, well, eight year negotiation. Then it went into vote in 2007. And then eventually it made its way through, uh, you know, the necessarily uh, red tape uh, to become a bill. And then in 2009, it was signed. So keep in mind that electronic cigarettes did not start coming mainstream to America until 2007, 2008. So there is absolutely no talk about an electronic cigarette except once in this entire, you know, thousand pages, thousand pages of, of uh, tobacco control bill that was written. So this was never expected from the government. But what it does is it set into motion the process of the PMTA, which is the pre-market tobacco application. And all that can reference is combustible product, because that's all that was on the market when this bill was all being drafted. 
And the way that the federal government works, unfortunately, uh, created the Center for Tobacco Products, which again was a byproduct of the of the Tobacco Control Act, and the Center for Tobacco Products is what exactly what it's called. Right. So when you fall into that category, whether you like it or not, and we can scream it on top of our, hey, we're not tobacco, there's no tobacco in any of these products, uh, it doesn't make any difference. This is the what statute was written. To me, uh, I mean, obviously it made more sense to create a center for alternative nicotine products, right? That, that would have given more definitions, that would have given more chance of trying to craft regulation that it's more appropriate for the product. However, nobody, whether it's Congress, Senate, FDA, HHS, nobody took that into consideration. Nobody even proposed something like that where, hey, listen, these products need to have their own category as alternative nicotine products. Let's try to regulate them as such. And they said, well, the only thing we have is the PMTA. Here you go, boys. Have fun. This is the path that you have to go down. So when we're looking at the PMTA, how, okay, I'm, this is a leading question, I guess, or it's a pretty mm -hmm. stupid question because we know the answer to it, but characterize how fair it is. Uh, well, I understand the thinking of the PMTA. Um, it's essentially what the government is saying is that, hey, look, cigarettes will never be banned, right? Cigarettes will always be on the market, but you can't put any new cigarettes out, right? So that was the negotiation. However, if you want to put any new tobacco product on the market, right, uh, then you're going to have to go through this strenuous process to prove to us that it's not as deadly as cigarettes. So, Well, that actually though, has a public health benefit. It actually, correct. yeah. The Center for Tobacco Products, keep in mind, and the PMTA process is the only center, the only center under the Food and Drug Administration that not only you have to prove that your product will benefit its users, but you also have to test your product on high effects people that don't use your product. No other center requires it. There's no other consumer good in America right now that is being in any kind of sh shape or form drugged through any process in the Food Drug Administration that has to do that. You're making coffee, you can test it on your, you know, the, your, the people that are actually drinking coffee. But these products, not only do you have to prove that they're less harmful, you also have to prove how they affect the, the public as a whole. So is it, do I like the process? Absolutely not. It's not made for vapor products. It is made for other products that simply we got captured under that same umbrella. Um, mm -hmm. Do I understand the thinking of it? Yes. I think that the intention was that we're going to set that bar high to prove to us that this product is worth it. Uh, now, on the backside of that as well, keep in mind that Philip Morris had a lot to do with the PMTA because they understand that one way to weed out competition is not to make a process affordable for other companies to be able to go through to compete with them. So for Philip Morris, the PMTA is nothing. Philip Morris has a, uh, a research facility in Switzerland that has a 450 million euro budget a year with 85 scientists inside. They can get a PMTA done in two weeks, right? And I'm just saying a number, but it doesn't cost them anything. But for smaller companies and small, medium, and even large independent vapor industry, it is, it's virtually impossible to do the PMTA as it's drafted in the guidance, not only economically, you know, from, from a financial standpoint, but to be able to gather the data in the allocated time to be able to present a complete PMTA. So even though I partially agree, I'm always trying to be fair, Brent. You know, I see these people, I say like, screw the FDA, it's all about the money. But honestly, the FDA chose this because this is the only pathway that they really have in the Tobacco Control Act. Now they have a discretion that could say, okay, well, vapor products need to have a different pathway, let's create one. 
But this is the federal government we're talking about. They're not going to do anything unless they're forced to by Congress to do something. So they're like, listen, this is the way it was drafted. You have to do a PMTA. This is what you have to do. And unfortunately, as much as I like it or it's unfair, this is the only process that we have. So and based on what you were saying in terms of Philip Morris, now we're seeing actually so Michelle Minton and, and a lot of other people have been reporting that there's hundreds of thousands of applications in. Is that true? Has there is there I mean, we know there's 400 million potential products that would be deemed as tobacco products that are in the e-cig category. Um, and that comes from the FDA. And then we've heard now that there's hundreds of thousands of applications in. Is that true? Yes, it's true. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to try to break this down to you in, in, in a way that everybody can understand it. Through a monumental effort from, from Char Owens, Amanda Wheeler, uh, April from Spada, April Myers, and, and a, a few others. I'm sorry if I forget your name. They started a Facebook group about a year, year and a half ago, and they said, you know, it, it, was, it was meant for other stuff, for registration and the kind of ingredient listing and some, some of the stuff that went. Through just a tremendous, just a monumental effort from these ladies, what they devised is they're like, okay, if the FDA wants us to follow a PMTA, what we're going to do is we're going to follow the minimum statutory requirements of a PMTA. And that entails seven modules, right? It's just seven things that you have to do in order for your PMTA to go into the FDA. And the FDA says, okay, well, it meets the minimum statutory requirement. Then we're going to accept it. So they started this process about, you know, six, six, um, six months ago, and they were able to create with their own time, with their own money, uh, you know, just homemade, you know, PC-based programs that, that's going to spit out files, that's going to gather data. They're able to be able to, to at least create a pathway for people to do an initial submission. So a lot of people ran with it, and a lot of people used that to submit their PMTAs. Keep in mind that there might be a manufacturer that has only six flavors on the market. There's other smaller manufacturers that might have 800 flavors on the market. Oh, and by the way, guess what? There's two bottle sizes and there's five nicotine strings. So that translates 800 you know, products into 5,000 products. Um, I've heard of people submitting 62,000 uh, PMTAs for, for their company. I've heard of companies submitting up to 100,000. So yes, I, I, there's definitely thousands and thousands of PMTAs in there. Um, one of the things that we did a couple of years ago, uh, Azim Chattery with Keller and Heckman came to me and he said, uh, we were in a, a hotel down in Florida. He says, we're going to have a meeting up uh, in, in a room tonight. I want you to join. Uh, I, have, I have this idea. Uh, so I went to this meeting. There's about 20 manufacturers there and some, some attorneys and some chemists. And he says, well, we, we, what we're thinking about doing is creating a coalition, right? We know a PMTA is coming. And originally the thought was like, we're going to create this coalition to split the costs you know, originally they, they thought about using the same PG supplier, the same VG supplier that would really alleviate, like split the cost among the coalition. Obviously, you know, nobody in the vaping industry can agree, you know, <laughs> you know, so that didn't pan out exactly how it happened. But the coalition, what it did, and this is part of what the PMTAs that I did and, and another companies, I think it was about 35, 40 companies in this coalition. Uh, what we did is we started to bridge. We created a lit review that was kind of split the cost between everybody. We got some data. We all used kind of different labs to gather our, our information. But the coalition itself started to produce a lot of a lot of easier templates for us to fill in these different modules to be able to submit a PMTA. So that was the second thing that happened. Then you, you always have this category here, which is the bigger companies, maybe you know a half percent of these submissions. People like, you know, Juul, 
views some of the bigger tobacco companies, some of the bigger non-big tobacco-owned but tobacco companies that are out there that submitted their PMTAs for their products as well, too. Of course, those PMTAs are more extensive, more detailed with more clinical work. So these three types of groups all came together and 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 really in, in an incredible amount of time. Keep in mind that the original deadline was 2022 that was set by Scott Gottlieb. Then it was pushed back because of the lawsuit and, and then Judge's grim decision. So we really didn't have much time, even though, Brett, I will tell you, as somebody that, that has been an advocate for this, I've been telling people to start testing their stuff a long time ago. Sure. But nobody believes me. Everybody's like, oh, they're going to go away. They're going to kick the bucket down the road. They're gonna, you know, this could have been easier if people had started uh, a while ago. But anyway, so where we stand right now is through the, the effort of Char's group and through the effort of Azeem and, and Keller and Heckman and through the effort of, you know, these companies that have, have taken it serious. There's companies like, like Swisher, like EAS Consulting, Chris Howard, that have been working on this for a couple of years. They knew it was coming and they're submitting some really good applications for their products and their flavored products and trying to show the data that, that these products belong on the market. Um, there's thousands. <laughs> there's thousands of applications at the FDA right now uh, so with the goal of being accepted. You know, right. we're looking to be accepted at least to buy us some time to continue to be able to sell these products for the next couple of years on the market until the FDA decides what they're going to do with the applications. So you've been inside now, and obviously Amanda and Char and everyone else, you know, been piecing, you know, trying to put together the puzzle, puzzle right? And so we titled this Picking Up the Pieces today. That's, you know, are there pieces to pick up uh, in the vaping industry? Let's talk about the pieces of the PMTA for a second, because for the longest time, they just seem to be too confusing to manage and handle. But all of a sudden in these last four or five weeks, and then in the last two weeks or so, there's been this cloud has kind of opened up a little bit. And it's just all of a sudden there's, you know, this rush in of actually completed, P, you know, PMTAs. Or, or, or are they totally completed? Like the idea was is to just get something in, that kind of thing. So how far along do you think the majority of these PMTAs are from the small, the small to medium-sized businesses? I would say that 99% of the PMTAs that we've submitted to the FDA are a D minus PMTA, what I call a D minus PMTA. Sure. Uh, and it's just phase one. Submitting and being accepted as phase one. That opens up phase two where you really have to get in to do some work as well too. Um, this is one of the things that I, I, I wish more people would understand. So let me, let me just try to kind of break it down to you. There's a lot of paperwork involved, a lot of repet repetitive paperwork as well too. Keep in mind that this program that the FDA has developed was developed 20 years ago. Okay, so the actual process of you filing a PMTA is burdensome. There's a lot of data required. There's a lot of data that was based on tobacco and tobacco weight that we had to, you know, maneuver and kind of manipulate into the e-liquid. The FDA tried to do that with our latest guidance, but it wasn't really <laughs> it wasn't really done well because they really don't understand the product and how it's being manufactured. So these modules, as you as you look at these modules, some of them make sense, administrative, description of your product, uh, where it's manufactured, how it's manufactured, how do you handle marketing, how do you handle not selling to youth. But when you start diving into more of the scientific side of it, I think that's where a lot of the companies have, they haven't been able to, you know, to submit this data. Now, some of them have submitted that, hey, look, we're giving you this, and then we're going to do some toxicology testing later. Um, part of my job as a consultant is I take clients on and I hook them up with a lab that can give them a letter of intent that, hey, we're going to start doing some stability and we're going to do some HVACs. Uh, then there's other clients like my clients. I didn't take anybody that didn't do any toxicology. So all my clients did HPHCs and did stability testing to submit with their PMTA to at least show that, hey, 
we have some scientific work with our PMPAs. And then if you need more, maybe, you know, you send us a letter and tell us, hey, it's incomplete. We need, you know, some more testing and so, and so forth and so on. And then you have, you know, again, that third group that I was talking about, PMI, that has done extensive clinical and scientific work on their product and they've submitted it as well too. So it, yes, it was complex and it still is complex. It's still very, very difficult to navigate every module of this. But I think it was done in a way, again, through the effort of of these these ladies and Azim, of course, and, and other people that were involved. I think it was done in a way where we could at least generate uh, an understanding to the FDA that, look, your system, first of all, is is antiquated. Uh, and number two, you don't know what you're in for when you're receiving a million applications that basically say the same thing. You know, it's PG, VG, and it's flavoring. And, you know, your system really, really is not working the way it was intended to. And we're hoping, and we're hoping that the FDA looks at this and say, well, based on the literature that you provided, right, our literature was thousands and thousands of pages that basically supports what we're saying, that vaping is better than smoking, and also vaping is better than IQOS which you approved as a PMTA this year. Very smart. So since we're providing you this data that shows that our product is less safer, then we don't have to, you know, inject mice with nicotine to prove to you that this product is less harmful. That's what we're asking for. And, and we're hoping that the FDA, we're hoping that the FDA takes a little more common sense approach and uses some enforce, uh, enforcement discretion, which they have, they have that power to say, okay, well, we, we're going to kind of take a look at this and maybe refine the requirements of a PMT. It's still going to be costly. I don't want to give anybody false hope. Clinical work and toxicology work is expensive. You know, it's a lab. It's not like I send it to my buddy down the street and he does it. You know, there's, there's a lot of work that's involved. Sure. Um, but it's going to be expensive, but hopefully it won't be in the millions and it'll be just in the thousands. And, and hopefully some of the companies will be able to complete the work. Now, FDA has been informing stakeholders, individuals, right, that their application has, you know, been accepted and now is in review. Big, huge, you know, some celebration there. Uh, I was kind of smart of FDA to do that. Um, do you think that. I mean. Are. are <laughs> Are they likely to do like a, like a mass acceptance, do you think, once they realize that there's just too much work? Like at some point, the bureaucracy is just going to bog down so much that they're just not going to be able to process them in the manner in which that they thought that they were going to. And I think at some point, courts could step in and say a regulatory process that's now fully underway, if it bogs down and isn't fair, is too slow, um, you know, uh, makes mistakes that actually could cause FDA some problems, could it not? Yes. Um, let, me, let me first address the acceptance because a lot of people are forgetting one step. And again, it's just the way how this community and these news kind of travels through Facebook and people are not getting the accurate information. There's four steps to an acceptance of a PMTA, the process of the PMTA, I should say. First is accepting. Accepting does not mean it goes into review. Okay, I just want everybody to no. understand that your application was accepted does not necessarily mean that it's going to go into review. Accepted means they look that you meet the minimum statutory requirements of a PMTA. Nobody opens up and digs in. They just look that you meet the minimum statutory requirements. After it's accepted, which is step one, which is a huge step. That's a huge victory, I think, for anybody that gets accepted. Then it goes into filing. That's the second step. And in filing, they can reject it or they can send it off for scientific review. That's the critical step. And it's my understanding, and again, I could be wrong. I usually am not. 
But there's only one company that's been accepted and filed, and that is EAS. You know, for their for their closed favor product. Um, everybody else has been accepted. Yes, I get it, but nobody has actually been accepted and filed except the ES, from what I've seen. So is it okay. the is it the filing part that provides the protection to you know stay in business for a year? Explain that. There's yes. the discussion again. Great question. Great question. Uh, no, the acceptance allows you to continue to sell until it's rejected. So the fact that your application was accepted that means that you can continue legally to sell your product in the United States until you hear from the FDA. In the filing stage is where you're either going to get a rejection or you're going to get a deficiency letter that says, hey, look, you filled out the seven modules, but when we got into the modules, we looked at this is missing. So if it's something that's critical to the FDA, they might just flat out reject it because it doesn't meet the statutory requirements after they opened it up. Or they're going to say, well, it looks like everything is good inside here. Now we're going to send it to scientific review, which then opens up another chapter of them interacting with you and going back and forth. Keep in mind that there's FDA inspections. There's You, you have to send your products and samples of it. They might have to test it to, to look at your data and match. I mean, there's a whole process that goes in after that. But the filing is key. The filing is the one that kind of separates the rejection letters from the okay, we're going to move it to scientific review. Acceptance does not mean scientific review. And I, I hope everybody can spread that word across this industry. I'm tired of seeing companies saying, we did it, you know, we accepted and, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be reviewed. It's, it's just, it's silly to use that as a marketing scheme, you know, try to bash other companies, you know, it's just understand what the law is. There's four steps. Then when it goes into scientific review, that is step number four. And then at step number, step number three, and then step number four is the, decision that the FDA is going to is going to give you a marketing authorization order where you can continue to sell your product or they're they can kick it back at any time at any time they can reject it and send it back then you have 180 days to reapply so what was your take on icos receiving their marketing authorization for uh what is it less risk less risky than smoking you know you know what yes. is the actual what's the actual authorization um, it is appropriate for the protection of public health. Right. So what, what they do is they look at the IQOS as a, a harm reduction tool uh, of how many smokers will tra transition to that. What's the likelihood that people would initiate with it? Then they look at the toxicology data. And rightfully so, they were granted a PMTA. IQOS is less harmful than cigarettes. There's right. no doubt in my mind, right? Scientifically proven. Uh, that process took two years with the FDA. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it was not, it's, it's for one product, essentially, because they have four heat sticks. Um, and they didn't file any flavored heat sticks here, even though overseas they have flavored heat sticks. But uh, um, that process took two years. Uh, and then eventually they were granted uh, a modified risk uh, as well, too, where you can actually say right. that my product is less harmful than cigarettes, which is a, a whole different process than the PMTA, right? A mod modified uh, tobacco product risk category is a whole different other process. You have to go through TIPSAC and do a whole scientific and all that. But anyway, later they were granted that as well too. But let's do go you, back to the PMTA. I agree with the FDA granting the, the IQOS PMTA. I also have read the IQOS PMTA extensively twice. And let me tell you that. I could, uh, <laughs> it took a lot of hours uh, away from my life. And the amount of data and scientific research that has gone into this for the last 15 years, Brent, okay? I knew about the ICOs a long, long time ago, thanks to my good friend, Dr. Farsalinos. I actually got to try it before he even hit the market in Europe. Um, but they've been developing the ICOs for the last 15 years. So 
like, can I put a price on that? Like, what would it cost? What did it cost them for that PMTA? Uh, no, it's, I mean, we're talking about millions, if not billions of dollars of science for the last 15 years leading up to submitting this to the FDA and, and, and rightfully so uh, for them granting them a PMTA. Yeah, there was obviously pushback, you know, from some vapors in the community and so forth. But I think any time that you get the FDA moving and actually granting a PMTA in this area, and then obviously with the risk, uh, you know, statements, I think that can only be a good thing. Absolutely. I, I'm with you 110%. And and I, and I say that as a true tobacco harm reductionist, that that the IQOS is a good thing. Um, it gets It gets an electronic device in the hands of old people which we failed to do with vaping because we, we started turning mods into battery packs, right? right. Um, it, it gets older people used to charging something, cleaning something, because the IQOS is not easy. No, it's not, I've tried it, yeah. Yeah, it's extensive work for you to clean it and keep it. And it's timed, you know, like a cigarette. You can't use it like a vapor device where you can pick it up anytime. But it doesn't make that introduction. I have seen people in my homeland, IQOS is very big in Greece, um, older people, 60-year-old people using Iquos telling me this is the iPhone of smoking. Sixty-year-old mm. people. To me, that's a great thing because it opens up the door for them to try vaping devices as well too. Yeah. I because once you get used to having an electronic device in your hand and you're smoking, and going through it, the ritual of you moving over to a vaping device, it's just so so much easier. Um, keep in mind that Iquos still stinks. You know, still smells. Uh, Ico still has tar, even though at very you know lower levels than cigarettes, obviously. But if you look at the Ico's PMTA, it clearly has tar in it as well too. So I think that people transition to that, and then they want to try vaping as well too. I think we as an industry should be supporting uh, harm reduction tools like that. I agree. My problem with the Ico's is I don't want it to be the only option <laughs> that smokers have. Right? I'm always. Even when I talk to legislators all these years since 2014, I tell them I have absolutely nothing with Big Tobacco yeah. because that is my competition. I am going after the same customer as Big Tobacco. I'm going after the smoker, right? So I don't want you – whatever you want to do with Big Tobacco, I don't care. But give me the opportunity to compete with them. And then we're telling the FDA the same thing. This PMTA process, it's unfair and it's unjust. You need to give us the opportunity to compete with them. That's all we're asking for. Let us compete with them and let the free market decide. So I we're talking, you know. yeah, yeah, well, you know where I'm at. I totally agree with you on that. Um, not enough free market. Um, the free market and capitalism built vaping. And then, and obviously we know that's one of the reasons why some people actually really have it in for it. Um, let me ask you this. You're, we're talking devices here around the ICOS. Let's go straight to, you know, traditional vaping devices. And you've got a strong relationship with the device manufacturers in China. And if you can maybe fill our audience in about that. And as you're doing that, if you can answer for us, are there any significant differences with uh, the PMTA process, complexity, you know, potential, you know, success when it comes to the devices and e-liquid? Because we're always talking about the e-liquid in North America uh, when and not about the devices with PMTA. So what's going on with China? Are we going to see devices off the shelf and so forth? Yeah. I, per I personally did five PMTAs for Inikin for hardware, and I know that other Chinese manufacturers have filed PMTAs for their products as well, too. Um, clearly, the FDA says that they deem these products as tobacco products because they are derived from nicotine. And a device itself from a Chinese manufacturer 
has no nicotine mm-hmm. in it. It's just a device. So even though we did follow PMTAs and the process was similar, there was a few changes, obviously, when we're talking about ingredient listings and, and so forth. Also keep in mind that the FDA, the, the FDA has not set parameters for manufacturing overseas. Hell, they haven't even set parameters for manufacture in the United States. So it's very hard for a Chinese manufacturer to be able to comply with something that doesn't exist. So they basically had to submit their own SOPs and, and GMPs and how they manufacture in China, even though we don't know if the FDA is looking for that or what exactly they're looking for. Uh, but we did file the PMTAs, and, and we're just going to have to wait and see. If I had to guess, Brent, because uh, we're all guessing, nobody knows at this point. If I had to guess is that the FDA is really not going to look at hardware right now. I think it's going to put it at the bottom of the pile and start with their 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 enforcement discretion as far as what they prioritize. And clearly from their statement that they released yesterday, they're going after disposable vapes. So I think what they're going to do is they're going to look at the high nick disposable vape pods market, then come down to open vapor liquid, and then eventually try to decide something on on really a way of looking at hardware, even though it is a component uh, because it does vaporize e-liquid that has nicotine. These devices can vaporize liquid without nicotine. They can, they can vaporize liquid with, with tobacco-free nicotine. Um, I don't think they're actually captured at, in the exact definition as what the FDA is saying. So the FDA might turn around and say, okay, well, maybe just a registration, maybe, you know, some you know, CE stamp or whatever it has to come with, with, uh, with these devices. They might be able to change the way that that hardware will apply or how the hardware is going to stay in the market. Now, my prediction is that nothing's going to stop from China. Like they're going to continue to make products and ship them into the United States. And it is what it is. And, and to be honest with you, I, I agree with that. It's a technology product. You can't put a, a, a 2016 date on, on technology. It's getting better. It's getting more efficient. It's getting more satisfying for vapors and for smokers alike. So I think that the technology is going to continue. And at the end of the day, if you're smart and you're in China, all you have to do is just slap a sticker on it. This is not to be used with nicotine. And there's nothing that the FDA can do about it. That's an absolute fact, right? Even though, you know, it will be used with with nicotine eventually. But but, uh, I don't think that the technology is going to stop. And I think that the hardware manufacturers that did file, good for them. And good for everybody that filed the PMTA. It's good to show to the FDA that, well, this is what you chose. Now you figure it out. You're the government agency. Our taxes go to you. You wanted to regulate this product. Let's show us what you can do. So we've got 11,000 or so, 10, 11,000 retail shops, um, at least as of last fall, when mm-hmm. that number was first uh, put out there, um, that you know are involved in you know retailing vaping products in the United States. What's going to happen to those shops? I know obviously some have closed, and then you have the COVID issue because that just you know annihilated some more. So, you know, from teen vaping, E-Valley, and COVID, I mean, that's just done a lot. But now, you know, we're coming out of, the, you know, all of that. We just had the news that came out uh, from CDC in the, in the, what is it, the National Youth Tobacco Survey that says there's yeah. 1.8 million less teen vapors, surprise, um, that are out there. That's great news, obviously. Um, so are these shops closing down? because of PMTA, are, are they having to worry about whether or not the juice that they're buying from their wholesaler is in the process of PMTA or not? The same with the devices and so forth. Like, how do you as a store owner, you know, five people working for you, how do you know if the product that you're bringing in is, you know, legal and part of the process? Or can you? The official answer is you don't know. The FDA made an announcement that they're going to create a list of people that have 
filed PMTAs and they're going to make it available to the public. They didn't tell us when. So as it stands right now, if you're a retailer, the only way that you can judge is to ask your distributor and your wholesaler and say, do these products have a PMTA? There's no sell-off period either. September the 10th, the products that have not filed a PMTA and are not accepted are illegal to sell in the United States, period. And it is your responsibility. I just don't personally think that there is an enforcement arm that is going to do anything about it, at least for the next six months. I don't expect tomorrow the FDA to bust out with AK-47s and go around vape shops and pulling product that is that is uh, not compliant. I just don't think that's going to happen. So in my opinion, if you're a vape shop, uh, what you should do is sell off the stock that you have, right? And then contact your wholesalers and ask them to see a receipt of an acceptance of a PMTA. The FDA provides you with a letter, uh, a receipt, if you're going to file your products from a PMTA immediately that says it was received. So you can use that as a proof while you're waiting for an acceptance letter. Say, hey, look, I filed a PMTA and I'm waiting to hear back. That way you can judge if you want to continue to carry their products. And then the companies that do have acceptance letters that they, if they actually accepted the PMTA, you can use that. If you're a retail shop owner, keep it on file, right? Everything that you get, any communication you get with a wholesaler to be protected in case of the FDA inspection is to have that, that on file and say, hey, look, this is what I got from this company when I, when I purchased the product and that's going to alleviate you know, any penalties from you. I'm wondering um, if I'm wondering if I could, if I may, for a second. I'm I'm wondering whether or not if it's actual local authorities that could be more of the danger in some areas that are very vehemently anti-vaping, and you get like city councils and so forth responding to local anti-vaping groups that you know doing some raw 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 stuff. You know, coming they and threatening can't to inspect. They can't inspect, but they can pass laws, which yeah. I'm you know we're going to talk about later. I mean, states definitely have the the right to get in there and and create not right, but. But they do it anyway, but they can get in there and make a law and say, hey, listen, you know, you can't you can't sell anything that doesn't have a PMTA approval or mm. if it's under review and change the law and then give the authority to state inspectors and enforcement to do that. But as it stands right now, nobody has that. So okay. you you are going to get inspected from uh, from the federal side and the FDA contracts, you know, inspectors in various states and various companies to go around and. Uh, inspect the registered facilities. Keep in mind that a lot of the vape shops as well too here in America, for better or for worse, have become hybrid shops. So you're mm -hmm. not finding just vape in the shops. You'll find CBD, you'll find THC, you'll find pipes, you'll find glass, you'll find all kinds of products in the vape shop today, which is a little bit, not all of them, okay? So don't, don't send me hate mail. Um, but a not lot of all these, head shops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, not all of them, but but a lot of vape shops have transitioned for whatever reason. You know, the value, like you said, the scare, it's all hurt business and it's all hurt smokers from coming into this, to these shops. Mm -hmm. So I think that the PMTA process, if it's done correctly and we get some products approved, I honestly believe that it will be a turning point for the vape shops. I think that will reignite their desire to help smokers. It's very easy for you to get customers in the door when the FDA says, this product is less harmful than, than smoking, just like they did with Hycos, right? Mm -hmm. If they say that about vaping products, it's easy for you to get out there and go back to what we're doing, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, when these shops were opening and we were converting like five smokers a day. And that just does not happen anymore. So right. the shops need to be aware of the regulations, but also the shops need to be aware that there is a, there's a demand and they need to cater to their customers. And they have a responsibility, even if that means breaking the law, Brent, to provide products to these people that they help quit smoking. These customers depend on you. They depend on that shop to stay off cigarettes with the products that you're providing. So 
you know, I'm not telling you to break the law. All I'm saying is that you have a responsibility to defy laws that make no sense. <laughs> so, Demetrius, I, I mean, it's fair to say that there has been times in your life, in your career as a vaping advocate, that the doom and gloom that you've had for the, for the future of the industry has been so great, it would probably crush the earth into a small little diamond. That's how much, the, that's how much you've had it. You don't seem doom and gloom at all today. Oh, no, we're still fucked. No. <laughs> no, 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 don't get me wrong. I, I started this in, in 2014 on my podcast and saying that, that we are F thing and people were always um, criticizing me and people were, were telling me um, you're outrageous, you're just doing this to scare people. Uh, the reality is, all you guys, if you've ever done a PMTA, and I think people that have looked at the PMTA maybe now understand what I was saying, is that this procedure this this regulatory framework was designed to eliminate competition and we are the competition the independent vaping industry is the competition right now and they tried battery explosions popcorn lung evali covid man they have tried they have thrown everything to us brent I don't know. I can't, I can't think of any other, not even the weed industry has gone what we have gone through in the last three, four years of them trying to get rid of us. And we're standing there every day. We wake up, we try to convert people. We try to do the right thing. But look, all, the ultimate kick is the PMTA. The PMTA, if, if you create a PMTA the way that the guidance that they provided tells you to create a PMTA, we're looking at anywhere between eight to $12 million for one flavor, for one product, for one skew. For one banana e-liquid, eight to twelve million dollars. So don't make no mistake about it. That it's not, I'm not. I mean, I I'm always trying to be positive, but the truth is that this is where it's heading. Unless, unless I'm completely wrong, and that the FDA, like I said, looks at this and say, you know, it's unfair for small business. <laughs> Again, I'm just I'm I'm throwing things out there because they're all unknowns. We don't know exactly what the FDA is going to do. Nobody knows what the FDA is going to do. It's all speculation up to now. And if anybody tells you different, like I know what the FDA is, they're lying to you. Um, I'm hoping that there will be a different pathway. I'm hoping with all these applications that they receive, they understand that there's absolutely no way that that work can be done at any lab here in the United States or globally, to be honest with you. Um, so, and, and maybe we'll get some some reprieve. But we, if it stands as the guidance, 99.9999% of the market will be eliminated, will be all uh, adulterated illegal products. So again, just yeah. not today now, maybe six months, maybe 12. So, yeah, maybe six months, maybe a year, maybe two years, yes. Right, maybe two years, right. So again, just more total uh, unknown. Yes. Then there's not, well, it's a known unknown, I guess. You know, if you think about it, it's always been that way. One of our viewers asked, you know, hey, what's up with Trump? Is he going to step in on this? Man, you know, I, I, we have tried very, very hard. We haven't seen any response at all, unfortunately. I know that there's a lot of things happening in the background and there's, there's some pressure being put on. But, you know, ultimately, I have not seen him take the same stance as he's done for, you know, his buddies in the oil fields and his buddies in telecommunication, his buddies in space, where all these regulations are somehow magically, you know, uh, disappeared or manipulated or bent. Uh, we haven't seen that in, 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 in the product that literally can save half a million Americans a year. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I wish I knew, I wish I knew, I, I wish I had an answer for that. Uh, I, I mean, 
So you and I, you and I really have been not through before the, the election. No, I don't see it happening before the election. Not before the election, right? So I mean, you and I have got a, a strong history of you know working together, sometimes bumping into each other sure. uh, over some of our coverage and stuff like that. Because you know we yeah. we really felt strongly that Trump presented an opportunity back in 2017, just after his inauguration, and we did provide some yes. coverage to a group that had some close connections with uh, Ryan's Priebus and uh, Paul Ryan, Speaker Paul Ryan. Um, and, you know, there and there was still Duncan Hunter, Congressman Hunter's uh, legislation was still out there before that unraveled and so forth. You went to prison, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, right, exactly. Um, <laughs> actually, I don't know. Did, did he go to prison yet? Uh, or, whatever. I mean, whatever happened he... to him. Yeah, I just yeah. want to make sure we, to, to uh, the extent yeah. that, you know, that our live shows are news. I, I wouldn't want to say that someone's gone. Gone. No, no. I think yeah. his wife. I think somebody. I think his wife went. Somebody took the fall for for that. Those. those something cards. about his wife. Yeah. I. I just. It, to me, it's not. It's not something we report on. And there's you know plenty yeah. of other stuff. Um, I agree. But here's here's the point though. It, and let me ask this: Was an opportunity missed in those early days to reach President Trump because he clearly did not know the you know what vaping was last fall? Like you know his wife. Uh, and FDA gets to him and HHS secretary gets to him and stuff like that. There could have been at least the very least uh, some edumacation of uh, President Trump. Did an opportunity get missed? I don't think that politically and financially we positioned ourselves to be able to do that. Obviously, the cigar companies did because they got a complete bypass of the, the regulations. So obviously they did something wrong. One of the first meetings that I ever went to, serious meeting as an advocate, in 2014, I went to the Tobacco Merchants Association in Virginia uh, with Jeff Steyer, just some really, really smart people. And, and, and it was funny because the Tobacco Merchants Association is, the TMAs, is all the tobacco companies that are not the giants are part of this. Cigars, small tobacco manufacturers, small distributors, they're all part of this organization. And, uh, and it was heavily focused on vapor. Uh, that year, and then eventually it became more and more vapor. But in that meeting, you know, I, I love these tobacco guys because they, you know, they go outside. This is a nice hotel, and they have, you know, set up, you know, scotch and cigars outside, and they're smoking. And I talked to the cigar lobbyist, uh, one of the cigar lobbyists there. They have, you know, multiple. And I talked to the cigar lobbyist, and uh, and he told me he's like, Dimitri, let me tell you something. You're not going to get anywhere with vapor unless you take that money and you put it in the right pockets. And he was absolutely right. From 2013 to 2017, 2018, we didn't put money in the right pockets. We were putting it in every other pocket of every criminal and crook that came by this industry and took money away from us, right? I mean, the Mark Blocks and the, and the, the, and I can go on and on. And we put our trust and our money into stupid things instead of putting it where it should have been worked. And unfortunately, we didn't do that. And we, we right now as an industry are hurting because of the Avali. We are hurting it because of the, the false propaganda. There's not much money being generated like it was back in the early days to be able to effectively make a change. And now we're left in a situation where we're like tweeting Trump or we get you know a couple hundred people in front of the White House saying we vape, we vote. But the honest answer to that is I don't even think we had a chance to get in front of him. Didn't. We're just not powerful enough. We're not organized enough, and we don't have the financial backing to be able to penetrate that advisor chain that's around them. Excuse me. You and I both know uh, we worked really hard over the course of four or five months to put together a national television campaign in the U.S. Yeah. on cable television for our Whole Truth uh, brand, and uh, we were close. I mean, it would have would have launched uh, in February of 2019, and we would have had six, seven months 
before Evalley broke, where we would have been in market with 150 million television impressions talking about the science around vaping. You just got to think that that might have helped. I, I <laughs> yeah, I was, I was still disappointed. I, I told you one day when we write the book with, with Phil and, and we're going to go into detail on that chapter, I believe that could have been a game changer uh, for our industry with just a couple million dollars. I don't think that the money was was that much, especially at that given time. Now it's impossible to mm. to raise that those kind of funds. Uh, you know, I might just take it to a tobacco company. I'll be honest with you. Mm. I mean, I'll just call somebody up at Philip Morris and say, hey, we've got this idea for vapor products. Do you want to fund it? And I guarantee you, they're probably more interested in it than, than our own independent vaping industry. But it just goes to show you, that's another example of how this industry thinks. It's immature, it's young, and they didn't take it seriously because they didn't see the immediate return. They're looking for that immediate return. I'm going to spend uh, $500 on Instagram on a model today, and then she's going to send me customers to buy my products. This is the way that most of these companies thinking. And they don't understand, hey, we're going to invest a couple hundred thousand dollars here, and I'm looking for that long-term return. Like over the next two years, vaping is going to rise. When vaping rises, more of my product is going to be sold, and I'm going to you know, gradually get that investment back and continue to grow. It's a very hard concept to sell to this industry that's just boom, 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 whatever the hot, hottest, the greatest, the latest. It just changes, you know, weekly or monthly. So very disappointing for the whole truth campaign. Uh, for I, I really thought that we had, and, and listen, let me tell you, me and Brent, we bumped heads even through that process. But ultimately what it, what, what it is is that we both have the same goal. Our goal was to help the industry. And I've bumped heads with other people, and then we can still walk along in that same line to accomplish something. And I think that when we finish that we accomplish something great. I think that the whole concept and the work that we put into it, I think the input from me to you and you to me with our strengths uh, ultimately yielded a great Absolutely. product that, you know, it was like my old mods over here was just shelf. <laughs> shelf. I can just sit there and look pretty. Well, the, you know, it's funny. The payoff happens the moment you see your commercial running on CNN, right? Like we're yeah. playing some pretty sophisticated uh, media marketing campaign. So what most people don't understand, and we won't spend a lot more time on this, but I, I do think it's important because it's a lesson for the future because as the industry, you know, stabilizes and then hopefully starts to grow again, it has to participate in programs like this because the only people in the United States that, you know, approve whether or not an ad goes on the air is the ad sales department and the clearance department. So yeah. if you're, if you're, and they want to take your money, so if you're working with Scripps or any of the other cable channels or NBC or whatever, and if you've got them and there are ad salespeople behind you, right, and you've got the science to back it up, you're going to get on the air if you've got the money to pay for it. And this that's is, critically important. Absolutely. This is not, by the way, I want to clarify something because this is Reg Watch and not just some YouTube show. Hunter was sentenced to 11 months. His wife got eight months house arrest. That's a, I just pulled it up. So uh, thanks, Patrick, for, for sending that link. Excellent. Thank right. you. I'm usually I'm usually right. I just wanted to clarify that for, for your piece. But I'm going to go back to just a couple of things which you touched on. The whole truth is another piece of projects that have been introduced into this vaping industry where the vaping industry could have really taken a look at this and say this could be a game changer and crushed it. In 2015, might I remind you, he, along with David Abrams from Enjoy, recognized that the next attack that is coming from public health is kids. Mm. We saw the bad labels. We saw what these, 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 these public health groups are going to do. They said, well, we can't get them on it being killing people because it's not. We can't get them on diacetyl. We can't get them on this. 
well, let's go after them as kids, which came true, right? It's all about the kids now. In today's market, it's all about the kids. Let's protect the kids. In 2015, we came up with Vape Free Youth, which was a project started by me and Enjoy to try to self-regulate this industry and try to put an adult product on the market, stay away from childhood, you know, labeling, try, you know, cartoons, nomenclature, stuff that would entice kids. As an industry, let's do the right thing. We went, met with the FDA. I met face-to-face with Mitch Zeller along with 12 manufacturers in that meeting room. And I said, we're going to put in motion vape-free youth to show to you that we care about this industry. And what does this industry do? They bash me. Not only did they bash me, they completely ruined this project, right? Companies saying, oh, we don't want somebody telling us what to put on our labels and what we don't want this and we don't want that. You know, another example, mm-hmm. uh, Sevia USA, me and Phil went to China. We begged these Chinese manufacturers to start putting money into the fight over here. After a year of very hard work, we accomplished to create Sevia USA. Money started coming in. We started funding CASA. We started funding uh, VTA. We started funding states. We started to spend money, but again, the, 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 this industry got greedy. We had groups going behind our backs directly to the Chinese manufacturers asking for money. That project was squashed again. And look, you know, it, it's just like, it seems to me like because we're immature and because we have these shysters that are running amongst us still to this day uh, that are taking advantage of this industry, selling big dreams and not delivering on anything, it, this is one of the reasons why we are where we are right now and why we're losing we're losing um, uh, the fight um, tremendously, <laughs> in my opinion. Well, and speaking of the fight and uh, just a quick, you know, station break, please go to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's our microsite for fundraising. We're downstream. So obviously we are hit as hard, if not harder than everyone, uh, because we rely on the help from vaping companies and, of course, you, the viewer. So if you get a chance, please uh, head over. And American dollars are doing really good for us in Canada. Just a little reminder about how much we like greenbacks. And, of course, we promote fact-based science. You know, I know, facts and science together. It's a strange com- combination. Counter mis- misperceptions, destigmatize nicotine, and hold researchers, regulators, and reporters to account. So, again, that's support.regulatorwatch.com. And if you don't give, I'm sending Demetrius to your house. Yes. I'll go after <laughs> Hey, hey, listen, I know exactly how you feel. It's really, really tough now. And I really, you know, I kind of, I kind of, I'm, I'm in this torn state where I, I feel really bad. A lot of these guys, I've known them for years, Brent. I know how they started uh, and how hard they work to build their businesses. And, and the other side of me is like, damn, dude, you know, instead of giving $20,000 to Duncan Hunter's campaign or some stupid idea that Troutman came up or just all this. I mean, I can go on and on and the the book will have more detail. Obviously I can't really, I can't say stuff now because it's just going to cause turmoil and there's no reason to it. But instead of you could have taken this money and really made a positive change, take it and put it in the the pocket of a politician. That's what everybody else does, buddy. You know, that's how law is made in America. I hate to tell you. Um, And, and this argument that this product is safer than cigarettes is just didn't get us anywhere. You know, it, we just didn't play the the political card correctly, and we, we surrounded ourselves by by people that are looking to either a get their own political gain, or b they're just looking to you know get as much money as they possibly can from this industry and then exit. And and we continue to do that. Like, when are we going to learn that it's time for us to mature? And um, and when that day happens, if we're still around, I think we have a good chance. Well, and uh, I hear you there. So let's. Uh... As we're wrapping up here, we're not quite there yet. Uh, we always like to go a little bit longer with you. 
uh, Demetrius. You've got so much to say. Um, I've just got up here um, a quick note on, you might not be aware that the Tobacco Control Act does not uh, prohibit imports for personal consumption. In 24 hours, you know, uh, you can finish this off because you wrote this yourself. What are yeah. you trying to get at here? So this is this is my best tweet of this year, and I kept it purposely for a couple of days before the FDA um, um, uh, deadline was. If you read the Tobacco Control Act, again, I hate to say this, but more people should be talking about this. If you understand the Tobacco Control Act, I went into this in great detail on the DP show. Um, the bill has no provision of banned goods imported directly to the consumer. It only captures for sale or distribution in the United States. That means that the products that they've deemed, if you're selling them retail in America, or if you're distributing them in America, or if you're manufacturing them in America for, for, for distribution and retail use, they're captured under this law. However, if I order from overseas as Dimitri the Vaping Greek a bottle or a device and it comes directly to me, it's not captured under the Tobacco Control Act. Really? Which in turn, all it does, and listen, I'll be the first one to tell you, I would be the number one uh, American investor in a business like this in China. The Chinese right now, what they're doing is, and it's happening, trust me, the Chinese, what they're doing is they're starting to set up direct-to-consumer websites. If all goes away, you can be able to get on your computer, go to China, order five devices, five new coils, ship directly into your house with absolutely no control of the FDA or any other regulatory body because it's not captured under the Tobacco Control Act. So in essence, the president, the promised American jobs and American manufacturing, and let's get them out from Mexico, let's get them out from China, is essentially eliminating 150,000 jobs in America and sending all that money directly to the one thing that he said in his pre-election campaign, and that is bring money back from China, guess what? We're sending money to China. Uh, the, the, the tweet got some traction, unfortunately not as much as I was hoped to, because maybe some people don't understand what the purpose of that tweet was, but the purpose of it is to say, hey, look, your pre-election campaign say this, if this continues as it's going, all you're doing is this, customer base that has been created in America of dedicated vapors, whether it's a million, two million, three million, whatever it is, all these people can order directly from China with absolutely no, nothing that you can do about it. And you're not going to get a penny for it here in America. That's amazing. It's a, that's a big, huge loophole. What about, you know, passing laws with regards to the, the laws out there that I don't, it did it pass with the, with the shipping? The, no, it's not passing. It's it there. It's, it's still lingering, but it hasn't passed. It's you know, it's one of these things that goes into negotiations. You know, we're the negotiation tool. <laughs> Every time there's a negotiation between the Democrats and the, hey, you know, please screw these vapors. Let's, whatever it is, let's see if we can use it. You know, while they're trying to negotiate the budget, that's how the Cole Bishop was. You know, mm -hmm. that amendment was used again in budget talks, and who's who gets screwed against the vapors? Yeah, so, Cole Bishop was a disaster. Still there, mind. and a lot of support. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, uh, a bright spot in the world of, of vaping, the bright spot in the world of science, the bright spot in the fight for truth is that, uh, Dr. Stanton Glantz has decided to retire. I hear the scuttlebutt is he's joining the Biden campaign, maybe got a cabinet position or something. All the communists are going to Biden. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, listen, the day of the regulations, that was one of the multiple good news. We heard that some smaller companies got accepted. 
that was good news. He got um, he 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 abruptly retired. I have to add that as well too because that's the right way of reporting. Nobody expected this, so it mm-hmm. happened very very quickly for whatever reason. Uh, and uh, number three, the the uh, teen vaping uh, came down with the numbers. So we had some we had some good 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 news on 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 D Day. Uh, as far as Stanton Clance is concerned, there's there's a couple of options out there. Obviously, all these sexual harassments that have been lingering over his head. There might have been some other accusations that forced him to step down. Uh, he might have taken a, a you know a pre agreement with a, something somebody you know tobacco free kids or something like that. That he's going to step out and he's going to announce in a little bit. Uh, or even worse, <laughs> even worse, he might take on a position as an expert witness. And uh, as you know, hearings will happen because they will. You know, eventually this vaping thing will be a huge uh, justice will be served one day. You know, he might be a you know a public health uh, expert witness uh, in opposition, as he's done all these years against the the tobacco companies. I, for one, I am glad to see him step down from UCSF. However. That doesn't change the position that there's ongoing studies going, which he announced he's still going to participate in. We know that his agenda is to continue to say, oh, vaping is bad, but we need more research because we need more money. And uh, he, that that theme is kind of going to continue whether he steps down or not. And um, and the damage that this man has caused is irreversible. Um, no it matter really how is. exposed or retracted, it seems like, Nobody wants to report on it. Yeah, it's a shame because, I mean, he completely, totally, you know, he proves that science it can be and used. And he's a sexual harasser as well, too, which is uh, on top of, um, we're talking about uh, uh, universities that should have zero tolerance. I mean, it should be used zero tolerance everywhere, but even more so where you have young women that are trying to make it into a very difficult medical field. Uh, have to deal with a person like that that their future is dependent on um, in in today's Me Too movement, which, by the way, let me tell you something. If Corona killed something, it really killed the Me Too movement, <laughs> okay? Because it was really gaining some traction there for a while, and all of a sudden we don't hear about it anymore. So there you go. There's my conspiracy that the Corona was put out there so the Me Too movement will go away. Um, but in all seriousness, um, the Me Too movement should be looking at people like that even though they're not celebrities, they're in a position that a young student can look to as a celebrity simply because of the position and the stature and the years that this man has had in that university and in public health in general. Yeah, and talk a little bit about the paper that the big one that he had retracted. Yeah, I mean, this uh, immediately it was dismissed by a lot of the the scientists, but uh, obviously Farsalinos and Pelosa and a a lot of people did a lot of work to be able to prove and show that the methodology used and the, the conclusion of that um, uh, paper was um, completely false and fabricated and manipulated. <laughs> There's a lot of faults within a, 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 a paper that was literally peer-reviewed and published, paid to publish, obviously, um, uh, in, in a medical journal. So not only was it retracted, right? It was actually mentioned by Public Health England that this retraction, which is to me, you know, Royal College of Physicians, public health, these are the standards, in my opinion, of, of how health groups should should operate in countries. It was actually mentioned by public health. It made a huge deal about it, of course, only in the UK. Here, mm. when it comes to the United States news, we didn't even hear about it. Nobody picked it up, except a couple of... Well, USA Today did, Dr. Rodu and, and stuff that really got some pressure going there. With, with an op-ed that went along with it, just keep in mind, so it wasn't like really, you know, 
as as prominent as we wanted it to to be, uh, and especially in the channels that we really needed to be seen, it was not seen. Um, let's let's take I mean, let's take a couple of a couple of minutes. Well, I want to do one thing here. Uh, you have a vape. We'll just take two three minutes, and then we'll come back and and finish off the show. But what I've got here is our coverage of uh, it's called ignoring hashtag Me Too. Um, Glance's sexual harassment allegations leave most silent. So it's a RegWatch piece that we did February 5th, 2018. Um, I mean, it's a short piece. We'll just watch the first two minutes. Just give sure. people an idea. There's been a lot of discussion around uh, the sexual harassment charges, but not a lot of explicating on that. And we do have a great piece on that. So just let's take a quick break here awesome. uh, for a couple of minutes and do that. And I just want to make sure actually that the audio is going to play right here. One sec. It's a hashtag me too moment, which should be rocking the highest echelons of public health and tobacco control, but instead silence. The allegations are troubling, sexual harassment, racial discrimination, and academic misconduct leveled against 71-year-old Dr. Stanton Glantz, the most well-known tobacco control researcher in the world. The hashtag MeToo movement continues to rage as new allegations of sexual misconduct surface daily. Prominent men have been publicly denounced and fired from their jobs, yet Dr. Stanton Glantz remains at his. Glantz is employed by the University of California, San Francisco, where he's a professor and director of the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education. Glantz first rose to prominence with his controversial research on the effects of secondhand smoke on the heart and gained notoriety for his role in the battle against big tobacco in the 1990s. Today, he is principal investigator, overseeing a team of academic researchers on a $20 million FDA-funded program developing science-based approaches to tobacco regulation. In recent years, Glantz has emerged as a fanatical opponent of e-cigarettes. A barrage of research papers and UCSF press releases reveal his trademark smugness as he attacks every finding that supports vaping as a safer alternative to smoking and dismisses any evidence that vaping is an effective tool for smoking cessation. Glantz proselytizes the gateway theory that states youth vaping leads to youth smoking. He admonishes dual use, demonstrating ingenuous understanding of the smoker's journey to quit. And he derides research colleagues and organizations such as Public Health England for promoting vaping as a tool for harm reduction. What's your bottom line on e-cigarettes? You asked me the question, do I think the world would be a better place if we didn't have any e-cigarettes? Yes, I do. I think e-cigarettes are making the cigarette epidemic worse. But you know the one great thing about what's going on in England? And I mean, I think those people, are, again, they're friends of mine. I've worked with some of them for years. I think they're absolutely nuts right now. The allegations against Professor Glantz were made public two months ago in a lawsuit filed by Dr. Eunice Neely, an academic researcher hired by UC San Francisco in 2015 to work directly under Professor Glantz at the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education. In the lawsuit, Neely alleges Glantz abused his authority and prestige and sexually harassed her and other female subordinates, subjecting them to misogynistic and racially insensitive behavior. Neely, who is black, says Glantz repeatedly stared at her body and chest, leered at her, forced her to hug him on several occasions, and made sexually charged remarks. And there it is. That is the uh, that's the main complaint against him. There's been a few other things that have been added over the years. That sure. kind of quietly went away. 
But as you were saying, I mean, when you're looking at, and this is in, in February, 2018 and not a, it didn't make a ripple anywhere. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate. I mean, we tried to sh shine light to it. It's again, it's, it's like, this is what we're really lacking is trying to having the effective PR to be able to point this stuff out and try to get, you know, be guests on CNN and say, you know, what? This study by a sexual harasser, you know, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that that we really need to do, and we, we're severely lacking, and nobody has been able to accomplish that. And this, it's a, it's a huge problem that we can't overcome. Is to how do how do we do counterattack this orchestrated propaganda against vaping and tobacco harm reduction? How do we counteract it? We have not been able to. A hundred warriors on Twitter is not going to effectively make change, you know, unfortunately. Uh, it's fun. It's, you know, maybe you can get your message across to one or two people, but to reach the masses, you really need to be equipped with professionals that can come out and shed a light on this, this predator or this, or, or his study that, that is completely false or the fact that he continues to put these may, may cause, may do this, may do that in his studies to continue to receive funds for his program and these grants that the government has given him. $20 million, are you kidding me? You know how many people in America I can help quit smoking with $20 million? I can probably, I can probably convert half a million Americans with that kind of money um, to, to, to quit vaping. But unfortunately, we just, we're not prepared for that. It, and it's, it's something that's really been eating me in, uh, inside all these years. And um, I don't see any, uh, any light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to that, that department. So for the U.S. industry, is there some light? I think that we should be patient. Um, should we, we should be uh, alert of what's happening. Uh, I think we should continue our business day to day and what we've been doing or the shops that actually convert smokers and the advocates and the people that are talking about vaping with your friends, your, your family circle. I think we should continue day to day uh, uh, as usual, as normal. Um, uh, we're just going to have to wait and see how the FDA decides over the first six months of this process to handle the applications and how how they will proceed to review them and what they're going to be asking for. If they come back on accepted applications that have been filed for review and start asking for enormous tasks that A, financially are, are not feasible or B, time-wise they're not feasible, then it's going to be handed over to Big Tobacco and, you know, the 10, 12 products that they're going to have on the market. If the FDA takes the discretion uh, of, hey, look, this product can really help people quit smoking, then there might be a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel. If anybody from public health of the FDA is, is watching, this is the way that, Brent, we, we help the, the health of citizens. The FDA can do three things. The FDA can say, Vaping is less harmful than smoking. That's it. A very, very simple statement. A very, very simple statement. Number two, they can say, we encourage the smoker parents of these little shitholes that are vaping, <laughs> the youth. <laughs> we encourage the smoker parents, if they have tried everything available on the market as far as NRTs, and they have failed to maybe give vaping a try to quit smoking, mm -hmm. which immediately will make it uncool with the youth. No teen will want to do it if they know that this is the tool their parents are using to quit smoking. Right. And they're going to move on to experiment to the next thing, whether that's Delta 8 or whatever, whatever the next hot thing is going to be on social media.
And number three is come up with a standardized testing like Europe did. Right. Let's get some basic stuff inside. Look, I don't think that your product should be on the market unless you test the ingredients. I'm telling you that right now. If you're in this industry and you hate me, uh, I don't care. People take your product, it's a consumer good, and they inhale it in their lungs. Okay? I'm not asking you to get mice and go down, but I'm asking you for basic HVHC ingredients, some stability testing. I mean, there's companies that put an expiration date on the bottle, Brent. How do we come up with that expiration date if you don't have a testing on your product? You know what yeah. I'm saying? The basic stuff. All I want is a standardized testing, kind of like the EU. The EU takes the stance like we're going to do this for three years on TBD. We're going to test the test. The testing in, in in Europe is not extensive, right? There's some cost involved, but it's feasible. Let's get them to do some basic testing, and over the next two three years, let's just monitor it. Let's see how you know. Kids are using it. Let's see how adults are using it. Let's see what the public benefit is. And then we can make some adjustments after two, three years, maybe revisit it and ask for more or ask for less. So come up with this. If, if the FDA did those three things, um, that, that would eliminate kid use. That would eliminate smokers dying. That would eliminate the states. It would, it would make the states back off of us and, and not see the state-by-state -state decimation that's going on in this industry. Um, so... If I was running the FDA, that's what I would do. That's all I'm saying. Um, my biggest problem for 2021 is going to be the state issue. And it's mm -hmm. something that we need to bring up because while the FDA is just, you know, taking their sweet time, um, the states are not going to wait that much. And uh, we saw it last year with six states, I think, already now banning flavors. And we're going to have more attacks that are coming in this year. So we need to be prepared on a state level to be able to counter these at least until the FDA makes some major announcements, whether they're going to accept or approve some products to be on the market. Let's uh, just go through a couple of last things here. The um, It looks like uh, You Don't Know Nicotine is uh, coming out finally. We're hosting excited. the world. In Greece, unfortunately, but uh, but yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm September 26th in Milwaukee. So that's going to be great. It's a drive-in. I think it's a drive-in situation. Yes. And you can buy tickets at Third Line Films. Time. Yeah. I would love to be to go to a drive-in and see. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be here, but I'm excited for it. I'm, I want to see how, how uh, you know, the, again, a lot of drama with this and the people talking about it and, um, you know, one way or the other, whether you agree or disagree with it. I do believe that Aaron is a very smart individual that that uh, always weighs and, and, and makes decisions on how he's going to present the subject and try to give both sides of the, of the coin. Um, so I'm excited for it. Will it have an effect? Um, I don't believe so. Again, I'm sorry. I hate to be the that guy, but I just don't think, once again, we have the PR behind it in order to get this in front of eyes of people that can really make it, like, it can really open up their perception of what nicotine is. The people that need to see it won't see it, unfortunately. And and it's it's unfortunate because he did a lot of work on this. He did a lot of work on a billion lives as well, too. And it's unfortunate that it doesn't have the effect that you that you would wish a movement like that, a movie like that, a documentary or anything would would have in in the message that we're trying to spend. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, of course, we produce content very niche too as well, right? And so, um, getting it out of the bubble is always a challenge. Um, so, last uh, is Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis. That's some good news. I'm going to tell you right now that. Um, I have done a lot of things for state advocacy in the last seven years. Um, 
I mean, a lot of things, a lot of things behind the closed doors that people don't know how hard I have worked in state advocacy. This win of the Florida Smoke Free Association is the biggest thing. I'm going to go on the record right now and say that this is the biggest thing that has ever happened in state. This is the biggest win by far at any level of state advocacy. If you read this letter, if you read this letter word for word, the way that the governor put it out, there's absolutely no doubt that these are words that were given to him by Florida Smoke Free Association and their lobby team. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind. What a huge win. Huge congratulations to the Florida Smoke Free Association, Nick Orlando, his wife, and everybody else that's involved on a shoestring budget, on a shoestring budget with only a handful of Florida industry members funding this thing and getting a result like that, um, not only a win for Florida, but I believe a win for the entire United States. If you're running a state association where you should be doing right now, like I did for Tennessee, downloaded a copy of PDF of this, I put it in my arsenal. If anything comes up in your state, you need to go there and say, hey, look, governor of Florida, that these words about vaping, you know, you really need to slow down and take a look at what you're attempting to do here in the state. So not only did it win there, but it also gave us another tool in our arsenal to fight it in our states as well, too. A huge congratulations. I, I, I'm so proud. I, I kind of jump-started that group in Florida. I kind of ignited the people that first started at TD Bowen and Jordan and other people that first started the Florida Smoker Association. And to see something that I had a little part to play on have such a huge win, it, it, I feel so proud for them, for the hard work that they put in the sleepless night for the last two months while this bill is floating on somebody's desk, not knowing if you're going to open up your door the next day to sell your product must be devastating for these business owners. And so I'm very, very proud of them. Now, on the other hand, Chicago just banned flavors the same day. So we didn't have a lot of chance to celebrate. Um, but uh, but that's just the way, the way it's going to be. We're going to win some, we're going to lose some. Well, there you go. Well, uh, Demetrius, thanks again uh, for coming on the show. It's always fantastic to have you on. Yeah, man, it's great. Thanks a lot. I, I, always, I always have a good time. You're such a great interviewer. And uh, I mean... Just it's 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 a great platform and and like I said again you know this is I'm just telling you what my opinions are and what my feelings are and my experience in this industry and you know some people might like it some people might not like it but I guarantee you that it comes 100% from the heart and it, you know I try to 99.999% as much as I can to prevent to, to present to you facts and truth and what exactly is happening or what exactly has to happen and then you. As an adult, I'm, I'm assuming you're an adult watching this program or having a business, do your own research and then double check, you know, what, what I'm saying and uh, and try to do the right thing. Well, everyone's in this one together, I think. If you're unlike other businesses, everyone's kind of tied together by the actions of others. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And it, again, it's been one of these uh, when these downfalls, uh, you know, I really can't wait till I get to this book. Um, it's going to it's going to be very, very uh, eye telling of you know, of, of this, this decade, uh, um, of the highs and lows and, and the rise of fall vaping. That's what the title of the book's going to be. But, uh, I hope that a year from now we're back here talking and we're still around and we're still, you know, Hey, uh, thankfully this came along and it saved the industry, but it always seems like we're, we're like, we're looking for 
you know, we're looking for a miracle. Like every time this, we're always looking for, you know, Trump to come in or the, so we're always looking for a miracle to save this industry. And it's, it's really unfair, man. It's really unfair because we, we are trying to help people quit smoking. Totally. I think it's common sense. We all pray for that eventually seeps through into the mind of the regular American. Yes. And, uh, Hey, I, it's never too late. Uh, PR is very, very important. In order to get into the mind of America, you got to get in front of where he stands, and he's standing right in front of that TV, and uh, got to be able to get that message. Uh, I think that even in today's market, um, I think that there is a possibility if everybody unites, is to create a PR firm that's independent of the uh, um, the, the trade groups that are out there and the, and the associate. I, I just believe that it it really could have a positive effect on vaping to change the mind of the person that doesn't smoke and vape to know the truth about vaping. And if we can do that as an industry, we have won the, the battle. I totally agree. Just hang tight right there for me. And thanks, Demetrius. And thank you for tuning in tonight to watch. Please remember to go to support.regulatorwatch.com and dig into that wallet and see if you can toss us a few dollars. You'll be happy for that. And so will we. And while you're online, please like us on Facebook. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. For regulatorwatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.